Today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 13. The last time we went over the gifts of the Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and today it appears that the Apostle Paul is switching gears to talk about love. But if you notice, the love chapter is sandwiched in between chapter 14 and chapter 12, and not by accident. The love chapter points backwards as well as it points forwards. And I've said this before, if the Corinthians truly had love, 1 Corinthians would be a much shorter letter that we would be studying. And love is the more excellent way that Paul pointed to in the end of chapter 12. Now, there's a contextual issue here. All right, We have to read the Bible in its context. However, even to unbelievers who don't know anything about the Bible and they go to a wedding, they've heard a priest or a, a, a pastor recite from this chapter in some way and even if you're not very familiar with the Bible as I read it some of this stuff is going to click in your minds so I find myself taking a dual road here a contextual road but also to find good applications for ourselves applicable to any relationship and I like this because you know what listen if we're really being true to God we're gonna speak about the entirety of God's Word his entire counsel. We're going to talk about hell. We're going to talk about sin. And then we're going to talk about love because it's all in here. We're going to talk about forgiveness. We're going to talk about uh, peace, inner tranquility. So today I get the good pleasure of talking about love and I really enjoyed studying it and I hope you enjoy hearing it. In English, we use the word love. In our society, maybe it's thrown around a little bit too common. Um, we talk on the phone and sometimes it's a it's a goodbye. Okay, I love you, goodbye, we hang up. With the teens, it's become kind of a cultural love ya. You know, they kind of throw that back and forth. Whether or not they really mean it, it's, it's more of the lingo of the, of the teens, right? Um, I can say, to describe my favorite food, I love chocolate. I really do. I mean, my wife sometimes hides candy because I, you know, my son gets upset. I'll go into his Halloween candy stuff, so. But I just have a problem with chocolate. Uh, and another way we can say love is an excited emotional utterance. I love you. It's completely done out of emotion or passion or what have you. Now, the Greeks used four different words for love to express love. Number one, eros, which described physical love, where we get in the English the word erotic. But understand this, that if I say I love chocolate, that can be an eros because there's a physical craving that I have for that chocolate. So it's more of a fleshly or physical craving. Um, the word storgi is a familial love. You love your family, why? Because you have to, because you grew up with them, right? <laughs> Was everybody laughing at that one? The third one, phileo, is more of an affectionate type of love. It's a, it's a strong love. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, except look out for the Phillies fans. You know, they're a pretty tough crowd. I guess they really love their team. And four, agape love. This is the love of choice. This is the, the highest form of love. And to be completely uh, proper using Bible hermeneutics, there is some overlap between phileo and agape. Now, 1 John 4, 8 tells us in Greek, hatheos agape esten. God is love. And when love is used for God, and make an equivalent, the word agape is used. So you, I'm really setting the stage for you to understand this word. And as a matter of fact, all throughout this chapter, in chapter 13, no other word but agape is used for love. Quick point of interest before we jump in. In the King James Version, if, you're, if you like that version, and it's a good version, you'll see the word charity. 
you'll read this chapter and it'll say, charity is kind, charity is, it does not envy. And you'll see in our Bible, the New King James Version, it says, love. Now, that's a good opportunity for the naysayers to say, you see, the Bible has changed. The translators messed around with the Bible. No, it isn't. It's the same Greek words, but what happens is our society has changed. And let me explain that. When the word charity was used, which was translated from charitas in the Latin, right, from the Latin Vulgate, it represented an action love, a giving love. In other words, in those days, when this was translated into King James, you would go to the peasants, and you would not just write a check to them, you would go to them, you would make meals for them, you would live among them. That was a giving action love. Now, our society has really changed, folks. A lot of Americans, yeah, we're charitable, and we'll write checks, and we'll send it, but we don't even know where, it, where it's going half the time. There's a disconnect between uh, modern society and that actual giving love. It's more of a, a tax write-off, or to make us feel better, or to send it to some foreign mission field, and we may, may never eat the pe meet the people that we're trying to help. So the word was changed. Isn't that amazing? To meet the understanding of what society says of these words of charity and love. So I found that interesting. Okay, so let's jump in. 1 Corinthians 13, starting with verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become as a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. So context. We just jumped off, a, if you were here last Sunday and the Sunday before, we just came off of chapter 12. The Corinthian believers were abusing their gifts. They were manufacturing some of them, especially the gift of tongues, and using it to glorify themselves and to um, look down on those who had what they considered the lesser gifts, right? What Paul tells us is that he lists some of the, the gifts that maybe the Corinthians, or even today, we would look at these gifts, so this is some good stuff. And he'll list these gifts and says, even if I had all these, but I don't have love, he shows that that love is foundational for these gifts to mean anything. Otherwise, they mean nothing, and we'll go through it. Verse 1. He says, and some translation says, if I speak or though I speak, this, Paul's not saying that he had all of these gifts, but he's giving an example. If I had the, if the gifts to speak of tongues, of men and angels, and basically what he's saying is the gift gives you the ability to speak a language that you've never studied. It's, it's a supernatural account. So you could be speaking and never have studied Spanish, German, Greek, or how about angelic? That's a, a language that nobody on the earth knows except the heavenly host. Very impressive, isn't it? But without love, it's a cacophony of sounds. And it reminds me of, you know, I guess the way this is the way God sees it. It reminds me of when I was in grade school and the kids would be a little noisy and the teacher couldn't get our attention. So she would take her nails and put them on the chalkboard and go, and oh, it would go right through you. Everybody would shut up and face to see what was going on. But it's a harsh sound. So Speaking with the gift of tongues, right? If you are just using it to boast yourself, God sees it as a failure. Only the speaker is glorified. With love, everyone understands the message and benefits, not just the individual. Okay, verse 2. 
If I had the gift of prophecy and knowledge, in other words, if you have this gift, you know future events, and you know all the reasons in your heart, because God has given you that, that knowledge, for past events with respect to God's omniscience, all-knowing. Without love, I have all this knowledge. Anything you ask me, I have the answer for. You can't stump me with any questions because I have all the answers. Very impressive, right? Without love, I get to keep all the knowledge and leave everybody in the dark. But with love, there's one word that comes in. It's called sharing, okay? So if you have that gift, your desire is for everyone else to know the gift, right? I put a lot of time in studying this material, and I try to give you as much of the information as I can, not to look at you and say, hey, I know the Bible and the culture and the Greek, you don't know anything. But when you love someone, you want to impart that gift so they can share in your gift, right? Even as children, what good is it playing with toys if you're going to hoard your toys and not let the other children play with it? There's no relationship there, right? You're not loving them. You're keeping all the toys for yourself. So sharing is the key. The second part of this is the gift of faith. I wanted to kind of separate them here. Imagine having the faith to literally move mountains. Now, my wife and I took a, a few uh, trips to the Poconos uh, this summer. And, you know, driving along 78, it's very impressive. I mean, it's not, you don't see a lot of it around in this particular part. But, you know, I just found myself trying to keep my eyes on the road, just looking up at these mountains. I mean, they just, just went up. Incredibly big masses of rock, probably millions of tons. You know, I don't know how you figure out how much they weigh, but very impressive. Could you imagine being with someone and they said, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, be removed. And the thing just starts to crack and, and shake and it, it just lifts up into the air and he's able to put it somewhere else. I got to tell you, I'd be impressed if I saw that. You know, I'd be like, wow. I mean, you know, can you build me a house like that or what? You know, but... Without love, you're just changing the topography. You're changing the landscape for the sake of changing it, to show off. With love, I don't really have an example, but I suppose you could get a job with the road department or something. Verse 3. He says, Though I bestow all my gifts to feed the poor, being a leader in giving to the poor, imagine the notoriety. Imagine the notoriety if somebody came in here and they were the CEO of one of the biggest charities. Wow, that would be impressive. You know, this person is such a, a self-sacrificing person and gives their lives to the poor. Now, how could this at all be done out of love, without love? I'll give you an example. Something came to my mind as I was studying this. I remember after the 9-11 tragedy, the American Red Cross and the United Way came under serious fire for not responding to those who needed them the most. They were in control of probably millions or billions of dollars worth of assets, but when it came time to dole out the goods, it was a strictly business decision, and they came under fire. So I could say that probably that wasn't, that wasn't motivated out of love, you know? So you can find many examples of this. The second part of this verse is that I give my body to be burned, or a sacrifice in general, and we see this in the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel's three friends would not bow down to the false gods, and they said, you can throw us in the fiery pit but we're not going to bow down to your, God, your gods. So maybe it was reminiscent of that. Maybe what Paul was saying here was prophetic, as giving your body to be burned was actually becoming very common when the Christians were being persecuted. All right? Without love, charity and great sacrifice can be done with pride as a motivator. If you ever read Matthew 23, where Jesus really slams the religious leaders, 
You know, they were big shots in their community. When they would go to a feast, someone would offer them the best seats. You know, they were well taken care of. And they were looked at as pious, and they fasted, and they, they gave, they tithed so much that they, their little garden plants, they would tithe of the, the, whatever was coming off the plant. But they had their reward. They got the praise from the community. With love, there's a deeper heart issue of loving sacrifice, and Jesus exemplified that. And others followed in his footsteps. As a matter of fact, uh, Peter, after Jesus was crucified, uh, was resurrected, ascended into heaven, when it came time for Peter to die, if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord and Savior. Please crucify me upside down. Because he did not even feel that his sacrifice was, was worthy to emulate his, his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I mean, crucifixion's bad enough, but that just must have been a horrible feeling to go through what he went through. But it was a picture of self-sacrifice and love. God's not impressed with any of our achievements if they're ego-centered and not other-centered. Let me just say this. It's easy to love ourselves, right? We do that as babies. If you have children, they cry, and they learn when you give them something to eat that this works, I'm going to do it again. <laughs> or I'm dirty, I'm going to cry, change my diaper. Hey, it worked, let me try that again. And babies know. You know, you take their toys, they scream. Mom comes over and says, what's going on? You know, give the toy back. So we, we learn to love ourselves, even as babies. And uh, sometimes as adults, we still act like babies and still love ourselves like that and act like someone's taken our toys. But it's also easy for us to love those who love us back. Jesus revolutionized love because even Peter said, huh, I should forgive my brother seven times, right, Lord? No, 70 times seven. But he did say, Jesus, that you should love your enemies. Oh, wait a minute. We were told, even by the religious leaders, that it was okay to hate the Babylonians and the Romans and all those. And Jesus says, no, love your enemies. Jesus said, love those who can't return the favor. This revolutionized love and the understanding of it. You see, it's hard to focus outward and deny ourselves because it doesn't come natural. Whenever we do that, it's really a work of the Spirit, right? Verse 4. And again, this will sound familiar to probably most of you, even if you're not familiar with, with the scripture itself. It says, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Right? And I've seen this done a lot of different ways. These are the attributes of love. Um, sometimes I've heard pastors say, uh, you know, love is kind, love is patient. Substitute your name for the word love, and does that apply? Is that a truthful statement? Uh, so let's uh, see. We, maybe we get ourselves our scorecards out and see how we fit in here. Let's go. Let's try it out here. Number one, suffers long, patient. Love is not impulsive. This is a good quality to test while in traffic, or at the line of the store, doesn't it bother you when, all right, it's busy at the supermarket, everybody's in the line, and it says 12 items or less. You know where I'm going with this. And there's always that person that's got to come in with 40 items. That's a test of our patience, right? If we're stuck in traffic, if there's anything that's holding us up, even discipling somebody who's a difficult disciple, you know? Love is patient. And this is a cornerstone to much of this list. I think of Fred, the school bus driver, who takes my 
picks up the kids and, and drops them off in front of my house. This guy, he's always got a smile. He's always kind. This kid's hanging out the windows. They're jumping up and down in the bus to see how far they can rock the thing. And Fred just is like, this guy's an amazing man. God bless him. I, my hat's off to people who, who are like bus drivers and, and, and can do that with a smile. That's, that's excellent. There's patience right there. Two, love is kind. It's benevolent. It's gentle. It's tender. It's gracious. The kind person says, don't worry about it. It's going to be okay with that reassuring tone. Love does not envy. It's not covetous. It's not jealous. And this, is, this never gets old, repeating this one. How do we react? What are our first thoughts when we're waiting for something and someone gets blessed before us? Are we happy or are we not liking them? See, jealousy leads to dislike. And there's... Listen, folks, we, we may all have that one person that for whatever reason, you can't put your finger on it, but they bother you. Sometimes it's within our own heart, that dislike, and it could come from jealousy. Jealousy leads to gossip. Gossip leads to division. And most churches have some element um, of this on one side or the other, right? Love does not parade itself. That means it doesn't brag. It doesn't boast. It doesn't say, it doesn't compete for intention and say, look at me and doesn't make a lot of noise. I think a real big challenge for pastors is to be relatable to the body, to show that we're human beings, but not to put too much of ourselves into the sermon. It isn't about me, it's about God's word. If, if something happens to me today, God will put somebody else here to take my place. We all are equal in the body of Christ, and it's an aberration when there are Christians who have to constantly stand up and say, look at me, and look for that attention. All right? it's, it's, it's not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, love is not puffed up. It's not arrogant or haughty. I looked into the Greek on a lot of these things, and I find the word pictures in the Greek fascinating. But the word for puffed up literally means inflated. It's like, like a blowfish, right? And when you think of puffed up, you think about, in our vernacular, a big head or a big ego, right? This is a superior attitude. This type of person is doing others a favor. And this is what folks don't like about corporate Christianity. It's this idea that we have to be like IBM or some of these businesses and run a corporation and treat people like they're in a corporation. No. You go to your corporation during the week, and that's how you earn your living. You come to church to be a family, right? So not puffed up, not arrogant, not haughty. We're all the same. It does not behave rudely. It's not crude or barbarous. And the, again, the word is, in the Greek is unseemly or unbecoming. In the police world and the military world, there's a charge that you don't get in most other occupations. It's called conduct unbecoming of an officer. I don't know if you've ever heard that. It's to say that if we have our professionary, uh, professional military folks or our professional police, there are certain things we do not expect to see them do. And there's a charge for them if they break those rules. So in other words, if two people get into a fight and it's mutual and they're duking it out, it's not even a crime. It's a petty, disorderly person's offense. But if a police officer just has an issue with somebody and just hauls off and punches them, that becomes a serious offense because we're held to a higher standard. Okay, where does that leave us as Christians? What about conduct unbecoming of God's children? Right? It's easy for us to point the finger at what everyone else is doing in the world, right? All the sinners out there, but we need to live up to those same standards. We are held to a higher standard as Christians, as God's people. 
Number seven, or the seventh quality here, is it does not seek its own. This is a heart issue, where parade itself was more of a flamboyant expression. This is more of a heart issue. You've heard the expression, always look out for number one, right? But this one says, it's not always to seek my own, it's not always my way, and sometimes I should look to see how another person lives, to put myself in another person's shoes before I criticize them, before I don't like them, or whatever the case may be. You know, the ability to take yourself out of you and try to look at someone else's point of view. Now, denying ourselves is easy for our kids. That's normal. Our children come from our body. They're the fruit of our loins, so to speak, and our little circle of friends. But what about those on the outside? Now, let me read this briefly, um, three verses. Jesus says this about love. In Matthew 5, 46 through 48, Jesus says, If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, are we friendly as Christians? What do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect or complete, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's a command. You shall be. He calls us to do these things not seek our own. The eighth point, not provoked or stirred. Again, another word picture. The Greek word literally means to sharpen alongside. (laughs) This is what we're doing. If we're provoked and we're stirred, we're just sharpening the spear and we're waiting for the right time to poke someone or to pop their balloon, right? Word pictures are great. Um, You know, the person who walks uh, or, or who makes you feel like you have to walk on eggshells. You know, whatever I do, I could provoke them, right? That's tough. And this, this uh, quality says to us, when our buttons are pushed, this aspect of love says, don't repay evil for evil. And that's not always easy, because, you know, sometimes others try to push our buttons. And how do we respond? And listen, sometimes we do a good job, and sometimes we don't. That's the human experience. But this is what we strive for, right? When somebody tries to push our buttons. Um, maybe respond with a laugh or a snicker or walk away or whatever the case may be. The Bible says that a soft answer turns away wrath. When we start heating up the discourse, it becomes who can yell the loudest, and then nobody hears anybody. So that's not good. Uh, The ninth quality, it thinks no evil or it thinks no harm. Now, there's many facets to this, and I've looked at this. We could say that we hold no record of evils or we think the better of others and not the worst or don't take things personal. But it's also not a license to continue in a pattern of bad behavior. Jesus said that if a brother repents, forgive him 70 times 7. Why? Because if there's not a true change of heart, then you're just putting good fruit on dirty soil and it doesn't work. Now, I just want to take this opportunity to say that Maybe in our minds we're thinking, do I do this? Does my spouse do this? Do my kids do this? You know, I can't see what's what's going on behind the frontal lobe there, but we all think of things as we're hearing God's word and we're hearing the message. And what I want to ask you to do is to look at this in a a way, uh, because love has reciprocity. Again, think of another person, think of you. How do you receive this stuff? How do you give this stuff? And why I say not to continue in a pattern of bad behavior is because we're going to be on both sides. Don't take advantage of another person's graciousness. It's really not fitting to force someone and hold them down and say, the Bible says you have to forgive, so now forgive me. That's manipulation, you see? 
if I am gracious to someone else and I'm forgiving, you know what? When it comes my turn, I'm hoping the same thing comes my way. There's a reciprocity there. However, instead of thinking of your spouse or our spouses, we should be thinking of ourselves as we're going through this. That's the right way to approach this, right? Love does not rejoice in iniquity or evil. You can look at this a lot of ways and, and with many of these. Um, you know, and, I, and I've seen it. Somebody falls into sin and there's a gloating, right? That should not be. Not happy when another falls so that maybe it's our opportunity or to look at others with moral superiority. Not to rejoice in evil in general, in any form. And this also um, speaks to compromise. Christians who emulate society and allow wickedness into their lives and they compromise and they're okay living unbiblical lives. Not to rejoice in iniquity. Forgiveness does not give us a license for lasciviousness. You see, the, the, the woman who was going to be stoned and Jesus saved the day and saved the life and they all dropped the stones and walked away. What did he say? Woman, go and sin no more. He didn't say, hey, party. You know, maybe the next time it happens, send up the bat signal and I'll come and save you again. He didn't say that. It doesn't work that way. There was one particular person, I can't remember where it was, where he healed them and he said, now don't sin anymore or a worse thing may happen to you. Jesus was loving, he was gracious, but he wasn't accommodating of sin. And the problem with the Corinthians is, and I believe it was in chapter 5, Paul rebuked them for bragging about their sin. You know, hey, we're, we're um, progressive, you know, we, we do things differently than the old traditional fuddy-duddies. You know, this, we tolerate this in our church. And Paul was saying, how could you do that? You should be ashamed of yourself, right? But it rejoices in the truth. What is truth? Pilate asked that question. Much of the world asked that question. Webster's Dictionary says this, truth is the quality of being in accordance with experience, facts, or reality. I've got news for you. The truth is not politically correct. We can't make the truth politically co correct. It is what it is. It's God's reality. And if it's his reality, then it's our reality because he's God. The gospel is hard-hitting. At times it talks about real sin, real hell, real blood that Jesus had to spill, right? for the atoning death for us, and real punishment for the unrepentant wicked. Right? Some have the idea, you know, I've already made up my mind. Don't confuse me with the facts. For, or the, the twelfth quality, it says, love bears all things. Bears. Greek word means to roof over. Kind of interesting. Roof over, to protect or to cover. Even with Christ and the apostles, many fled. One was a traitor. But Jesus was loyal to all of them. And he allowed for flaws and setbacks. And he also bore with sinful mankind. The Bible tells us. The Bible doesn't say when we were great and it was the best time in history, God sent his son because we were wonderful in behaving ourselves. It says no. While we were still yet sinners, while we were still wicked, while we were still fighting against God, God loved so, he so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son into the world that he might save sinners, right? That's what it says. So... You know, Jesus still went to the cross. He, he bore all things. He was a great example. Love believes all things. Believes means to have faith or trust, knowledge or understanding that we fight many battles, but the war is won and it's going to be okay. In World War II, uh, the Americans and the Britons were still losing men in 1945, but the war was over. It just wasn't realized yet. Yeah, but people are dying, but the war is over. You know, the winds were changing. They knew that the war was over. 
but people were still dying, right? So we fight battles, we fight spiritual battles, but Jesus won the war at the cross. It just has to be realized at this point. It, the other quality is love hopes all things. Hope is an expectation. That's why we call Christ our blessed hope. See, politicians love to promise, and that's, that's the way they get elected. They promise the union something, they promise the older people something, they promise the, you know, the, the workers something, they promise everybody something. Jesus is the only one that can deliver on all his promises. Man promises, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when they get into office, forget about it. It doesn't matter at that point. My expectation and my trust is that Romans 8.28 will be fulfilled. And that says that we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called, to the called according to his purpose. Right? I believe that. I believe that. The next quality is love endures all things. The Greek word means to stay under or to remain, to have fortitude or perseverance as in the race of life. We endure in response to God's love and his promises to us. That gives us our fuel to continue going, no matter what the circumstances are. See, God hasn't called us to be quitters, folks. And I think, you know, as Christians, sometimes we need to hear that. God has not called us to be quitters. Our lives are short. You know, as I get older, I'm seeing folks my age more and just a little bit older passing away. You know, I didn't realize this when I was 15 or 16, but I'm starting to see it more. Our lives are short. God has not called us to be quitters. Too many people have been taken uh, from us, the ones that we love, in an untimely death. And that could be us. So make the best of your life. Don't be a quitter. Galatians 6, 9 tells us this. And let us not grow weary while doing good. Why does he say that? Because sometimes we do grow weary while doing good. That's why it's in here, right? God knows us. He knows our frame. He knows that we're fragile. Let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season, we shall reap if we do not lose heart. You know, you can see the flag. It's starting to come up the hill, and they're just ready to put it in there. Don't give up. The war is almost over, right? Um, and I use this example I just love history. 480 BC, the 300 Spartans. It was 300 Spartans, 7,000 Greek soldiers, and uh, they knew that once the Persians figured out uh, how to get to the Thermopylae Pass and outflank the Greeks, the war it was going to be over that particular battle. So the Spartans knew that they were uh, there was a traitor who who led the Persians around the pass so they could flank them on both sides and use their archers, which eventually killed all the Spartans. They sent the 7,000 Greek soldiers home. No need for uh, needless bloodshed. But what they did was they held off the Persians long enough so that Athens could be evacuated and they could fight the Persians another day and Greek, uh, Greece was eventually victorious. Do you realize because of that? Now listen, God can do anything. But all things being equal, without that battle being won, um, 2,500 years ago, we wouldn't have democracy today. Think about that. Do a little study in that history, in Greek culture. That battle, those 300 Spartans gave their lives, and uh, it, it has ramifications even today for us to have the right to vote because of the monarchies back then and all that. So the war is won, right? The war is won. Sometimes Christians have this thing where, you know, we get trained, we hear the word, we're built up in the word, uh, you know, we're, you know, God's doing things with us. He's helping us to mature, um, you know, we're growing in our knowledge. 
And it's almost like a soldier who's taught the hand-to-hand combat, taught the marksmanship skills, they're given all the equipment, the accoutrements, the rifle, and sent to go into the battle. And that soldier goes, you know why after all this, they just drop their rifle, walk the other way, leave their clothes and don civilian clothes because they don't want to fight in the battle. God has not called us to be quitters. This is serious business. Love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things, love endures all things. Lastly, love never fails. This is our standard, brothers and sisters. It's permanent. The best example is God's love for us. It never fails. It can't be defeated. It never gives in. I never think in my mind, gee, I wonder if a million years into eternity, God's going to decide he doesn't like me anymore and he's going to get rid of me and just get rid of us all out of heaven and make new people. Love never fails. That's a ridiculous thought, if anyone's thought it, because the Bible counters that, right? Romans 8, again, 38 through 39. The Apostle Paul says this, For I am persuaded, I'm convinced, that neither death nor life nor angels, good or bad angels, I would add to that, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And I have a question. Well, before I, let me just give give you this quote. Zach Poonin said, never doubt in the darkness what the Lord has shown you in the light, right? Do you believe the scripture? Do you believe what the Apostle Paul says, that nothing can separate, it from, separate us from the love of God? There, listen, and, and I'm, not, I'm saying this to be exhortative. We do have our moments where we doubt. We do have our moments where we see things happen in our lives. People come against us, financial issues, marital issues, familial issues, and it's just like you just feel like it's on top of you. But don't let your circumstances determine what you believe about God's love for you. We are going to go through hard times. See, this is the problem with the, the churches that, that preach the happy messages all the time. Because when their believers go in through life's trials, they either leave the church or they think they're not saved. Because the pastor has always talked about how God wants you to be rich and happy and everything's going to be wonderful all the time. Well, I got news for you. It isn't. We can never mature that way. We can never be fortified and strengthened that way. A lot of times our character was built through the hard things in life and getting through them with the Lord. And it's not fun going through it. I don't like it. Well, you're the pastor. It must be great for you all the time. I don't like it when I'm going through it. But I can always look back, bar none incident, bar any incident, look back and say, God had a purpose for that. How can I be mad at him? He's my God. He created me. He loves me. He wants the best for me. Love never fails. Do you believe that? Can I get a little bit of a stronger response? Thank you. (laughs) The bottom line with love, it's dynamic. It's not stagnant. It's reciprocal. It doesn't give up. It's sharing, and it's directed outwards. Like that article I read uh, last Sunday from that uh, uh, pastor in Elizabeth. Great article. It's directed outwards. You have to fight the me-centeredness and push it out. It's got to come out. It's not all about loving me. And where do the Corinthians fit in? The gifts in general, let me count the ways. I mean, we've gone over this so many times. Um, And I would say, too, that the cross is the ultimate expression of love, if I didn't make that clear. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe would not perish but have everlasting life. He didn't send his, his son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't do that. But that through him the world might be saved, right? 
That's what it's all about, love. He loved us that much. Now, if you think you could get to heaven by good works or any other way, then Jesus wasted his time. It was a big waste. He should have just had fun instead of dying at the age of 32, 33, whatever it was. He should have just had fun hanging out with people until a ripe old age or he might still be here. But no, he had to go to the cross because there was no other way to die and atone for our sins. All right? Now, is anyone brave enough here? Has anyone been brave enough to take out their scorecard and see where they fit in? <laughs> you know, I read this, and, and you know, my wife is so gracious when she talks about me, but I read this and say, I could be a better husband. I could be a better father. I could be a better pastor. See, just like Jesus is our standard, if, if, God, if we had low expectations and low standards and we met them, where would that, what would that do for us? Not a whole lot. Oh, I can get over that hurdle. That was easy. What about that hurdle? See, when we look at Christ and we try to emulate Christ, that's a high standard. You know? But Christ encourages us to keep trying to meet that standard. The same thing with love here. It's not to discourage us. None of us are going to get 16 out of 16, right? Uh, sometimes we do good. We get a little bit more than, than the, the day before. Sometimes we don't do so good. But that's our standard. Love is our standard. That's what we look forward to. That's what we try to attain. Fruit of the Spirit kind of ties into this nicely. Uh, Galatians 5, through 23. All the fruit of the Spirit is in here, starting with love. And love is foundational to joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, and self-control. It's all in here. It's all wrapped up in a nice package. The rest of verse 8. But when there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. The question is why and when. Why will it fail? And when will it fail and when will it cease? The answer is when the Lord comes back and establishes his kingdom. What are the gifts for now? To establish his church in a hostile world. This, this world, unfortunately, is in the possession of Satan right now. So in order to supernaturally build a, a church, right, we need the gifts of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to be in our lives, and we have to allow the Holy Spirit to... Uh, to empower us to do these incredible feats that would normally be impossible. Jesus said the gates of hell would never, you know, it would, it would pound and pound and pound, but it would never prevail against the church, right? So we, we meander through this world, we have the, the Holy Spirit, but when the Lord comes back, because what do we pray in the Lord's prayer? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do we just say that? Is it just something we had to memorize as kids? No, we believe it right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we look forward to. And when that's it, when we're in his presence, when he's reigning as the king, we won't need this stuff anymore. Paul continues, verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. Remember, the gift's context even with all the gifts, we only know right now what God has chosen to reveal to us. Even if you looked at Revelation, one simple thing, the seven thunders uttered, and John said, I was about to write, and I was told, don't write. Don't do that. We're not telling them what the seven thunders uttered. So there's a lot of things in the scripture. We only know what God has revealed for us, but we don't know the whole story. When the perfect has come the Lord, there's no more need for the imperfect. And honestly, too, I believe our understanding is not as good as it will be because when, we, when we're in his presence and when we're changed, we lose that sin element. 
So we, we have a greater understanding of God and his characteristics, right? There's much more to learn. Verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Another analogy here. As children, we do childish things. But as adults, we hopefully stop doing childish things and do adult things, right? By the same token, spiritually, the Corinthians were acting as though they'd arrived and that they were perfected. They were really adults acting like babies playing with toys. When God's final age is ushered in, most of the stuff we argue about now will have no meaning. You don't get along with another Christian, and they're definitely born again, and you're definitely born again, and, you, and, the, and the Lord calls us to heaven on the way up, our differences are just going to disappear. It's not going to be any grudges in heaven. It's not going to be jealousy in heaven, right? I don't believe that. So the stuff that we argue about now is stupid. It's going to have no meaning. It's childish. They're toys. Verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. Now this is a good analogy from the nebulous or the cloudy to the clear. In those days, the Greeks had, they didn't have the perfected art of how we make mirrors, you know, the way the glass is made smooth and there's a laminate put behind it and we can see a nice reflection. The Greeks had uh, bronze, you know, flat pieces of bronze, and they would polish them. They were highly polished. And you would look at the bronze, and you could see a reflection. Well, the color was off, right? Uh, the, the lines were maybe not perfectly defined, but if you got up in the morning and you wanted to look presentable, you would put that bronze mirror up, and you could basically see what you look like and be presentable for when you leave the house. And he says that. We look in the mirror. He isn't, he's not prophesying about our mirrors. He's speaking about you see dimly but we'll eventually see the whole details, right? We have a, a vague reflection. We have a vague picture, okay? But we're going to see clearly. Now, here's an interesting thing. In the Old Testament, you could make out Jesus through the prophetic writings. An observant Jew could see the Messiah in the Old Testament writings. But wow, when Jesus came to the earth, right? I never expected anything. I mean, I'm reading the Bible. Yeah, okay, that's, that's right. But, wow, this is amazing. He raises the dead. He does all these things. His teachings are mesmerizing and captivating. So they saw dimly in the Old Testament, but they saw clearly when Jesus came. By the same token, I believe we see things now dimly, but when the Lord comes and establishes his kingdom, it's all going to make sense. None of us are going to argue about theology. None of us are going to argue about prophecy because it's all going to be right there. There's nothing to argue about. There's going to be no schisms in the body of Christ. And verse 13, last verse. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Faith, hope, love, but the greatest is love. Why? Well, number one, faith. Hebrews 11, 1b, says it's the confidence of things not seen. That's what faith is, confidence of things not seen. When we're in his presence, faith will acquiesce to sight. When we see him, there's no need for faith anymore. It's completed. It's fulfilled. We see him. Hope, Webster's Dictionary says, a, desired, a desire accompanied by expectation. When we're in his presence, all of our expectations will finally be realized and fulfilled. All of our expectations that are godly will be met. When I go to work, I must abide by South Brunswick Police Department's core values of integrity, respect, and professionalism. However, as believers, we all must, all of the time, abide by our conduct of behavior and conduct which is founded in faith, hope, and love. Why is love the greatest of these three? 
because God is love. We, we read that in 1 John 4, 8. And love is perfect because guess what? It doesn't acquiesce to anything. It doesn't become perfected. Love is perfect. You see, that's why we can't fulfill all this stuff. So faith and hope become something. Love is the greatest of these things because love can't become any better. Love preexisted us. Love will exist forever and eternity. Love will never change. God is love. If the Corinthians practice true love, truly, we as believers today might not even have a 1 Corinthians. Think about that one. If the Christian church practiced true love, the world might look a lot different today also. As we leave here today, I pray that we would also practice true love now that we have a better understanding of it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord.